On this week's episode, I sit down with Tyler Ansman to discuss throwing gas. I'm kidding, only partly. We sat down to talk about crafting the correct conditions to increase throwing velocity. This is a topic that I've found increasingly interesting as I've learned many of the rationales behind crafting a sensible, high-speed program. I've always been struck by the similarities between the pursuit of max speed sprinting and the development of higher throwing velocities. Tyler shares how to balance and optimize both the neurological and physiological adaptations within training. Tyler shares how he utilizes data to examine athlete readiness, progression, and how an athlete's force velocity profile can help better individualize program prescription. Tyler discusses the layout of training sessions and shares several manners in which he is able to use potentiation to increase overall power development as well as many other factors. We hit a lot of points along the way and I really enjoyed listening to Tyler share how quality high intensity reps can be a game changer for dynamic displays of power. Before we get into today's topic, I'd like to take time out to thank my sponsor for this week's episode over at The Amino Co. Amino Co. provides targeted amino acid supplements that are tailored to your specific needs. This month, I'll be focusing on the performance blend, which includes a key blend of essential amino acids, creatine, and caffeine to help improve strength, endurance, and cognitive performance. Perform gives you the overall boost to help get you over the hump and ready to perform. The great separator is our ability to perform whether that be in our daily activities, within competition, or during workouts. I can speak from experience when stating that PERFORM is a great addition to your daily supplementation program. I have a crazy work schedule between podcasts and training sessions, so when I get my own time to work out, I have to be ready to go. When taking PERFORM, I found that it doesn't matter if it's first thing in the morning, midday, or evening, the supplement helps me to do exactly what its namesake mentions, and that's PERFORM, and to do so at an increasingly high level. And that's just my experience. Aminoco's PERFORM supplement was created and crafted by Dr. Wolf. As a competitive athlete, Dr. Wolf has completed over 62 marathons, set national age group records, and is still running and fueling his body with PERFORM at the ripe age of 75. Research and science are two things that fascinate me and I always do my due diligence when examining different topics. Aminoco stands out because of their research and science-based approach. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com forward slash FTG. That's A-M-I-N-O-C-O dot com forward slash FTG. Once there, you can take advantage of a 30% discount on their products by entering my code FTG at checkout. Links will be provided in my show notes, on my monthly newsletter, website, and socials. Now, on to this week's show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Tyler Ansman. Tyler, I'm excited to have you on because I'm really interested. I've gotten more interested throughout the years in the process of throwing. I grew up playing baseball myself, but I've really gotten interested in high velocity movements, be it plyometric jumps, sprints. I focus a lot on sprinting, but I really kind of find found a natural connection between sprinting and these high outputs and the throwing game and high velocity throwing. So I, I kind of found a natural progression in that. It kind of gained my interest. And I was like, well, 
this piques my interest. So I begin to look at it more, begin to talk to more people about it. So that's one of the reasons I have you on. Um, you have a, a pretty cool background story about like how this all changed to you and your own personal development. And you've taken a skill that you developed and you kind of offer it to other individuals now. So tell people a little bit about your background, things that got you interested in this, and then kind of what you're doing currently. First, thanks for having me on. So I, I played, I grew up playing baseball. And so from I don't know, middle school on, I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do was like, you know, play baseball professionally or whatever the highest level I I could. And so I got through high school and I was, I was pretty good early on in high school and just kind of like, didn't really progress my last couple of years. I ended up going to a division three school in Virginia and then transferring after my freshman year to a different division three school back in Maryland um, where I'm from. And so I played three years, I finished my three years there. At that point, I just, you know, I knew I wanted to keep playing, but I really, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. I didn't throw hard enough to get those kind of professional baseball opportunities. So I knew I wasn't done with baseball and I'd regret it if I didn't kind of like pursue that a little bit further. And so my my parents were kind enough for the first year out of college that they kind of supported, you know, I, I moved back in at home for a year. I did a little bit of personal training on the side. So that, then I ended up moving out on my own and stuff. But for, for that first year or two, I really just kind of like trained and got better and needed to figure out, <clears throat> you know, where it was I needed to go in order to kind of throw hard enough to get opportunities. Cause at that point, when I left college, I was throwing, you know, 86, maybe topping at 88. And it just wasn't, wasn't enough to, to get a shot. Um, so I knew I needed to be like low to mid nineties, kind of bare minimum to, to get an opportunity. And so I had a decent, uh, background in, you know, anatomy and physiology and in the, on the kind of general training side of things, but the throwing stuff was not something I had a big background on. Um, so I sought out, you know, coaches and kind of experts who had had success doing what I wanted to do, learn from them if I could did, you know, research on my own, experimented on myself, that kind of thing. And, and I got myself up to uh, into the mid nineties. And so I got opportunities to play indie ball, a couple different places. So I played three years of, of pro baseball and ended up just like after that, I was still kind of trying to play after I'd gotten released during my third year. And one of the physical therapists in our area is actually the, the therapist for uh, team Israel for the world baseball classic and all their international stuff. And he called me out of the blue because I was doing some consulting work for a, a college near us. And he was like, Hey, you know, no one's really doing in the area, like what I've heard you do. Um, you should start a business and kind of do it around this. Cause I was still just more pursuing playing than anything else. And I did not take his advice right then. Um, I had to kind of figure that out for myself. So uh, a little while later, maybe a year or so later, I kind of started my own business and started training guys kind of to help them, you know, cut out hopefully some of the frustration that I had and make it a more kind of direct path to where they want to go with their baseball careers. So long winded explanation, but that's, that's kind of that. No, it's good because it informs us kind of like on the trial and error and the learning process, because I I really respect people who per se had, I guess, some skin in the game and like you've actually experienced it yourself and like you've tried it yourself. I think most coaches, not every coach, everyone has a different situation, but a lot of us that are within the athletic development and athletic performance field we experiment on ourselves. We tried things on ourselves. We tried to, you know, get ourselves to peak performance because we had aspirations uh, for ourselves perhaps to begin kind of natural to change to that. Can you talk a little bit about how your training shifted whenever you went from that mid eighties 
to that 90s? Like, what were some of those light bulb moments? What were you doing that might have been holding you back? Because that's going to transition nicely to this process that you've really detailed nicely in some of your writings. (laughs) One of the big things is that, so I was always a guy who really liked the weight room. I liked working hard. I liked, you know, training and stuff like that. And so when I first got to college, I was doing two a days and just kind of like my, some of my old training journals, I really should put out online because if anybody got a glimpse at those, they would just be like, it's a wonder that I stayed healthy for any length of time. Um, but I was like almost certainly chronically overreached. And so I never really like, even if I was, you know, making progress, I never could display it because I was just so overreached all the time. So one of the things was I pulled back the volume of training that I was doing and kind of made it more focused on the areas that I needed improvement. And so early on in that process, I needed to improve my maximal strength still some. And so I did that, but fairly quickly, that wasn't what was holding me back anymore. So it was kind of like, you know, kind of narrowing in on more of what my deficiencies were and going more towards those. So it was you know, on the elasticity and kind of higher velocity uh, side of things. Um, Cause I was not very good at anything in, involving that. I got pretty good at the heavy, slow stuff and was not good at the higher velocity, bouncy, elastic type stuff. Um, so going that direction helped and then getting really more specific with the, the throwing side of things. Right. Cause like I said, I always really liked the weight room and stuff like that. And so I put a lot of emphasis on that and you know the throwing training side of things was not really super specific there in the beginning it was just kind of like hey we're gonna you know long toss two or three times a week we're gonna throw some bullpens on top of that and that's kind of gonna be it right and so like my my long toss helped me for a while because i really i pushed the distance i tracked things like that i you know i did my pull downs or compression throws coming back in and when i had a radar gun available i would track that so that kind of thing but there was nothing more specific than that i didn't know what kind of like mechanical pieces were, were holding me back or even kind of really what that stuff should look like or feel like or whatever. So getting more specific on the throwing side of things and then gearing more towards the stuff that I wasn't as good at on the general side of things is really kind of what took me to like the next level. And the wording I've seen you use, we're going to talk about ne- the neurological and the physiological uh, processes in which you try to build your athletes. And along the way on podcasts, sometimes it can be aggravating. Like I had a podcast about the foot and <laughs> on the, my previous one, where we just kept talking about like, well, what would happen here? And I realized that there's a lot of different ways and in strength and conditioning, it's kind of like, it depends. And I realize you're probably doing both at the same time. I want to focus too on like long-term development as well. So if you're working with young athletes, let's start with that to begin with. Young athletes who have aspirations to play, but they're really young, you know, or early adolescents. What would you say would be the best place to begin to focus? Would it be on the coordination? Because they do like the starting strength or would we want to bring in the strength aspect of things? What would be your balance there if you were to do a percentage there on your preparatory methods? Yeah. So it, it kind of depends on how young we're talking about. So if we're talking, cause I kind of like, I'll kind of group guys, you know, kind of pre-puberty, post-puberty, and then like, um, we'll have like some, some guys beyond that, but like on the, on the younger side of things, we generally will go that way. And so you have kind of these windows of opportunity for like specific adaptations when guys are young. Right. So like when they're, when they're kind of pre-puberty and, and that kind of age, age range or d- development range, biological age, you have an opportunity for like the higher speed side of things. You can really kind of develop this kind of peak limb velocity that you're not going to have an opportunity to do kind of later down the line. So with the really young guys, if we're talking about like a specific training goal, generally it's speed related, right? So we're going to 
run fast and compete. We're going to jump high, far, whatever, compete. And we're going to throw stuff, whether it's med balls, baseballs, whatever it is, and compete. And we're going to do all these things at like very, very high velocities somewhat frequently. So we're talking like once or twice a week, we're going to kind of get after with those guys on those things. And then in terms of like kind of the, the strength and conditioning side of things, like we will learn the basic kind of movement patterns, but we're really not going crazy with the loading at this point. One, they're really not going to benefit a ton from it. Like they're, they're not really going to be able to make these muscle mass and strength changes to the same way they will be kind of post puberty. And two, again, we kind of have this bigger opportunity for the speed side of things. So like I do have, I do have a group or two groups of, of young guys, they're 10 to 12. And so like with a lot of that, what we're doing is we're gamifying stuff, first of all, as much as we possibly can. Like that's kind of the biggest thing. Cause like the number one overarching goal of when you're training a kid like that or kids like that is that they enjoy it so that they will come back long-term and continue with this. Cause like, that's the single biggest factor in their development is like how consistent can they be over a long period of time? If they can be consistent, even if their training isn't like perfectly optimal, they're probably going to see a pretty high level of success. Whereas if they hate it and never want to come back, then you've kind of burnt that kid out from, you know, really doing anything related to maybe that sport or like fitness for the rest of his life, which is like kind of a big bummer. So that's the big thing. And that's kind of how I would start with, with guys kind of that age. I like a lot of the things you're presenting there too. I mean, I'm always like to see different points of view, but a lot of the things you said there are things that I'm seeing with athletes that I like to work with too. And like, whenever you're talking about, like, I was going to put a post the other day, like if I can start an athlete, a young athlete, and if we can sprint, if we can jump and we can throw, I feel good about what we're doing. Now you mentioned the game part too. And the funny thing is, I think what keeps kids coming back is the game thing. I don't think the whole session can be a game, but I always want to give them that little slice. I want, I want to give them something to where they can be creative. And sometimes they struggle, even kids. It's like they're so serious because they're used to playing, you know, Dixie ball or whatever it's called up there. You know, they're used to playing ball so often. It's, it's a game. Something's on the line. I'm like, yeah, something's on the line here, but let's be creative and let's see how you move right now. Later on, we'll talk about models and shapes and all that just a little bit because it can be overwhelming, right? But going back to the sprints, the starts, the throws, the weight room, I like how you referenced it, but it's like those kids are going to be in the weight room for so long whenever, especially whenever they encounter like strength coaches, typically it tends to be swayed more that way anyways. So like right now I'm trying to say, well, if we do a deadlift today or if we do a goblet squat or if we do, you know, a goblet deadlift or something like that or, or landmine deadlift, think about your hip hinge process whenever we did a split throw. And I'm like, you see how those two things chain together. I just try and make them make little connections like that so that they realize that along the way. I'm like, you know how to do it. You're just not doing it the way you were doing it earlier. So I like to chain those things, especially for those young ones. So a lot of great points you made there. Uh, I would like to kind of go through and pick through the neurological processes of preparation versus the physiological processes of preparation. Now that we kind of talked about the profiles here. So let's start with neurological um, and talk about the components, how you kind of arrange those to work well with high velocity movements. You know, the neurological piece is kind of a, a really important part when we're talking about kind of the, the high velocity throwing. <laughs> and so we kind of balance that. So with all of this, we're kind of thinking about how we work extensively to intensively, right? So we're always kind of setting ourselves up for the next piece to come. So like when a guy comes in, even if they're like reasonably well-trained, I never assume that they're prepared for like the level of intensity that we're going to have for our, you know, uh, ballistic or plyometric kind of options, whether they're upper or lower body. So, you know, once we've assessed them, we obviously have a little better idea, but 
even from there, they're going through some period of extensification. So that's kind of like the first thing is we're setting up, you know, these specific tissue adaptations for the more intensive stuff that's going to come. Because generally when we're talking about these, these neurological changes, we're talking about like these really kind of high intensity movements. So they, they do kind of have to work together because in order for you to get these neurological adaptations, you have to be physiologically prepared to be able to kind of handle the loads that you're going to get. So whether it's like, you know, really high effort sprinting or whether it's, you know, high effort plyometrics with, you know, some kind of shock component to it. Um, all, all of these things, like a lot of guys are not set up to kind of handle that stuff when they come in, like, even if they have weight room experience, right. It's kind of like what we talked about. It's like the really basic level of weight room experience. Like, yeah, they probably squatted benched. They've probably deadlifted. They've probably done some, some kind of stuff like that, but like how much have they handled as far as like an impact or collision goes and how much have they been able to like kind of bounce through these things. And then even if they've done some plyometric variations, how much of that have they done for the upper body? Like that's something that like when guys come in, it's like totally foreign to them. So that's how we kind of really try to set it up in the beginning as we go, you know, extensive to intensive on like a really kind of simple and broad level there. And then once we get into like the programming and we're really trying to make sure that on, you know, kind of the days that we're trying to make these really specific adaptations, especially when we get more intense, that we have, you know, kind of the, the level of recovery that we need to make that happen. So that's kind of where like, you know, the high low model will come into play. So we, we want to make sure that like our high days are as high as possible, right? We want the, the biggest, relatively speaking, the biggest stress we can possibly get on that day. So the maximal outputs we can get. And then keep your low days low. Like too many guys want to come in and just do like, you know, moderate intensity stuff for a moderate volume on a low day. And it's like, no, if like you can't handle actually a low day being low, then do nothing because we need your high days to be high. Like if your low days kind of creep above that given level where they're impacting recovery negatively instead of positively like they should be, then we need to kind of nix that. And so some guys really can't handle low days. They just have to be off days. And then other guys handle them really well. And it really kind of helps them kind of start that recovery process to feel good about what they're doing and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how we'll divide it up and kind of set ourselves up for those adaptations um, on like kind of a, kind of a broad level. I don't know if that's exactly what you're going for there. Yeah, that's good because we can talk about a couple of different things that tie to that. Uh, and a couple of things that you list, list there as far as like neurological considerations, like whenever I'm prepping a team, a lot of the times, whenever I get to the season, sometimes you don't want to tax the mind too much or provide too much variation. But at the same time, I really like to force their system to coordinate in a, in a couple of different manners that they may not be familiar with or things that are going to re require really fast recruitment. Um, maybe not really high threshold, but really fast recruitment within their movements. So we might not be moving heavy weight, but we're moving quickly. Um, you know, you do the bandy co-contractions and, and different types of step-ups where they're having to stabilize and move, especially dealing with football population a lot. Um, I, I've utilized that. So that's one way that I guess you would say your high day too, referencing high and low, that may change to what a high day means depending on the time of preparation because a high day may mean high intensity weight, whereas other times it may mean high velocity uh, movements that could equally stress the system. So I guess since you've already referenced the high and low, how would you use the high and low in in and off season models uh, to prep athletes as well? I think in both cases, what we're really kind of talking about is consolidating stress, right? So in season, it's a little bit different than the off season, right? Cause in the off season, we can handle kind of carrying some degree of fatigue 
throughout the week because it's really about development. It's not about, you know, just uh, maximal outputs all the time. Now, having said that, right, if we're like in a period where we're trying to develop throwing velocity and stuff like that on, on that day where that output is meant to be high, then you need to make sure you're recovered for that day. So there are periods of the week where we may still kind of have to give ourselves like a mini taper going into that so that we can actually truly get that maximal output. Because like if, if high output for a guy is, you know, 95 miles an hour and he's so fatigued that he comes in and throws 85, like what has he really gotten from that max velocity session? Like probably nothing. It's probably just impacted his recovery negatively and dug him deeper into that hole. So that's kind of the thing there. So in the off season, you can handle more fatigue to a degree, but you want to still be careful about those high days. So that's, that's one thing is that in the off season, we're worried about developing qualities. Um, and so that's where you might use like a drop off percentage. Um, and you can be a little bit more generous with what that is in the off season, because you know about what that recovery curve is going to be, you know, if it's 1% versus two versus three, four or 5%, whatever it might be in order to like, be able to do that again. So you know how long that curve is going to be, and you can kind of work around that in the off season because you've got nothing you really have to be prepped for other than those training sessions. Whereas in the in season, right, your main focus is kind of being prepared for those games. So like if you're using a drop off one, you probably won't use it in the throwing context because like when we're talking about velocity development, that's really happening kind of in the off season for the most part. Uh, but we may be using that kind of in the weight room. And so you're going to use a fairly, a fairly low drop off percentage, like one or 2% during the in-season period, because we don't want any level of fatigue creeping in. Um, and you'll probably have a, a more narrow kind of hard stop where that is. Like if they make it past, you know, eight reps, right. It's a hard stop there for their kind of total reps, for this thing on a given day, even if they can maintain their velocity beyond it. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's kind of how I would think about that during the in-season versus the off-season kind of on the whole, and then kind of on like the, the micro level um, during the in-season period, we're generally like we talked about kind of consolidating stress, like our big days in general for our kind of strength and conditioning stuff. We're going to have a big day generally after their start day, talking about pitchers here specifically. So it'd be game day plus one will be kind of their higher force lift for the most part. And then their other lifts, we're generally doing two in a given like kind of micro um, their other lift will be on the same day as their bullpen post bullpen, assuming this guy's a starter. And that's kind of how we'll work it with relievers yet to get more creative. And it's kind of, if then scenarios built in there, you know, kind of in the off season period, we're doing a similar thing where like we may have, you know, kind of three main throwing days, right? Let's say it's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We will still have kind of our big general training days on those days post throwing. So either way we're consolidating stress. We're just doing it a bit differently in the in season versus off season. And we're being much more careful with our volume and level of fatigue in season. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And since we're talking fatigue and and in the way that stress can affect our outputs, I want to focus a little bit on what can happen whenever, which we've referenced a couple of times already, you have it in your own personal experience. And then if people come in and say, I'm having a high day, but I normally throw 92, but today I'm throwing, you know, 82 or whatever, I'm throwing 10 miles under, but today's a high day, right? that fiber shift that can occur because I would I would say that you would agree that if you're going for those high outputs one of the things that we theoretically say now people will dice it up different ways but one of the things that is occurring is that we're kind of changing our fiber structure um, and it's been proven that that can happen especially with some of those fast twitches that can go 
down or up depending on the way which we fatigue the system. So can we talk about how you utilize that to rationalize your high low days and, and build your, your micro cycles? So you're exactly right. So we do know that with, so we have right within, we have type one and type two fibers kind of on a, on a general way. And then within type two fibers, right, we have type two a, and then we have type two X and then maybe type two, two AX. Um, and so the type two a are your kind of like, for lack of a better term, like combo, slow twitch, fast twitch, right? They're your slower, fast twitch fibers. And then your type two X are your super fast, fast twitch fibers. And so like, if you look at the shortening velocities, type two X are significantly faster than type two A and then type two A are still significantly faster than type one. So, right. Ideally we have a highest percentage of type two fibers as possible. And then within that, we want to maintain or kind of transition to as many type two X fibers as possible, but kind of the limiting factor there is the level of fatigue. So the more fatigue that's created kind of in the system, the more those type two X are going to shift to type two A. Right. And we, we especially know this because like you could see in sedentary populations that type two X are kind of like almost through the roof. And so there's like a lot of interesting things that can kind of go along with that with like, you know, how you, how you taper and do things like this, which doesn't necessarily apply to baseball unless you have a really important tryout or something like that. But there, you can get a type two X rebound after a hard period of training. If you take a complete rest and all this kind of stuff and you'll get like, you know, ostensibly huge performance increases. When you're thinking about this, if you have an athlete who you obviously want to maintain these really high outputs with, and we want these fiber type shifts uh, towards type 2X, or we, we at least want to maintain as many type 2X as we can get, what you want to do is minimize the level of fatigue that you kind of put in the, into the system. And so what that means is we're not taking sets to failure. We're not going super high rep sets. We're ideally monitoring velocity of the movement, whether it's like a jump, throw, sprint, or uh, a bar velocity type thing. You want to monitor that because we we know kind of like within these specific ranges or drop-offs or whatever, what kind of specific part of the curve we're ideally working. And then we know what that drop-off looks like from their peak for that day. And so like if we're really going after like a velocity development session, that drop-off is going to be very low. So we're talking like probably a one to 3% drop-off. And I generally go, I split the difference usually and go 2%. So like the second somebody drops below, you know, 98% of their best for that day, we're cutting it. And so this could be, you know, with our max velocity throws, this could be with sprints, this could be, you know, jump height, jump distance, this could be med ball throws, whatever it might be, you're cutting it at that point because clearly there's enough fatigue that we're not maximally developing this quality anymore, right? Because we know auto-regulation, if we're trying to max, maximize the quality, that's the way we maximize it, right? We're giving them exactly as much they can, as they can handle, not more, not less. We know exactly what it is because we're measuring it and we've got the drop off here and we're not going to go beyond that because when you start going beyond that, one, we're no longer training that quality. And then two, we're talking about more of those fiber type shifts from 2X to 2A. So you really want to minimize fatigue uh, as much as you can. The other thing that that means is we're talking about relatively long rest periods during the training session. We're talking about relatively low rep sets. So like for the most part, if we're trying to maximum develop its qualities, we're probably talking three reps or less, maybe four or less, but really you're looking for, for the drop-offs to kind of give you your guidance there. Um, and then we're talking about, you know, relatively long periods of time between sessions. So like if we're talking about a velocity development session, 
you, I mean, you're not getting more than two in a week if we're talking about throwing. And we're probably talking like a Monday, Friday type deal or a Monday, Thursday type deal where you're getting two to three days between each one to kind of maximally recover because we know that nervous system is going to take probably about 72 hours to come around after a really big session like this. You referenced a lot of this, but I just kind of want to hear some of your data points too, because any coach that I have on that kind of speaks to data and data points and, and tracking things and monitoring them as being a big part of what they do. Obviously you track the velocity of throws. What about other metrics that you feel like closely correlate with that? I heard you say you you track sprints, you track jumps. I heard you say you track throws. Give me some of these different metrics and kind of what you're looking for with each of those that you found most closely chained to the ability to throw uh, with high velocity. We'll track a couple of, so this is like, this is part of our intake assessment with our load velocity and force velocity profile. We'll track a few different upper body ballistic movements and a few different lower body ballistic movements. And what we're trying to do is basically hit all planes and we're trying to hit all of like the, the movement possibilities for that kind of body segment for the lower body, right? We're just talking, you know, vertical, horizontal, lateral kind of thing. And then for the upper body, we're talking about some kind of overhead, some kind of push, and then some kind of rotational deal. And so what we test um, for the upper body, we test ballistic pushups. Um, so you can use either a jump mat or like a Vitruve, like bar sensor, or you could use a push band, um, something along those lines, just keep it consistent. And so we're testing either height or velocity there. Then we'll test, and sometimes we'll do that with and without a counter movement. Um, we'll test uh, supine overhead med ball throws. Um, and we do that with, uh, a few different loads. So we can do kind of a force velocity profile from that. And then we do med ball shot puts or scoop tosses. If we have a guy who's kind of coming in with some, some elbow stuff, we may do a scoop toss instead. And so then we've got kind of our three different kind of movement categories that we need for the upper body, for the lower body, we'll do lateral bound. We'll do a broad jump and we'll do a vertical jump. Um, and within the vertical jump category, we do a few different ones. So we'll do a depth, a counter movement and a squat jump. So we can also get kind of our elastic utilization ratio and with more advanced guys, we'll do the same thing with the ballistic pushups. Um, it's just that not everybody who's coming through the doors can, can handle any of those variations, let alone the shock pushup variation. Um, and so what we're seeing with that is basically, so I, I mean, research kind of bore this out a few years ago, but the lateral bound does tend to have the closest transfer of the jumps to throwing velocity. And then from the upper body, the fastest transfer tends to be from improving the rotational shot put or scoop toss. And then, but the, honestly, usually the biggest areas of opportunity are related to the kind of heavier overhead throws with most guys. It's not all guys. And with the ballistic pushup variations, most guys just like eccentrically and isometrically cannot handle those loads and those velocities um, in those like end range positions. So we have like a lot of work to do in terms of relating to the tissue and that kind of stuff before we can throw that in and and really start seeing improvements. But those are kind of like our six categories of like that we really kind of look at when we're, when we're testing guys. And whenever you're pushing a lot of things going through my mind here, because I just want to kind of see which ways we're going here. So the lateral balance go there first. Uh, Whenever you do an assessment, obviously you're trying to get a data point like, what are some of the breaking points? Because whenever I see people move laterally, 
like a lot of the times they they lack that movement and they try and get themselves square. So like, do you ever stop people whenever you're doing an assessment? But in baseball, you eventually try and get to that way. So is that something that you try and stop or you just let that be a natural process? You're not really preaching to, I guess you say, a model in that particular one. Yeah. So part of it with all of these is like a lack of familiarization can like kind of skew your data a little bit in the beginning. So if you have somebody who's never done a lateral, like that's easily the most complex one that we test. Like a lot of times guys can struggle with that if they're, if they're beginners. <clears throat> and so what we, we actually test like a rotational variation. So like you'll start on one leg, like facing, you know, if I'm facing this way and then as I'm in the air, I'm going to end up facing this way and land on both feet. Um, and that way we can kind of like have our, have our data be a little bit more consistent. Cause if you test like the opposite leg, there's like ways guys can kind of cheat it and whatever. And if we add the rotational component, it ends up being a lot more like a broad jump and it tends to be a little bit more specific from the rotational aspect. So we found a little bit more uh, like closely correlated data with that to throwing velocity than we did uh, other variations that we've tested. So occasionally guys will try to go like almost like a single leg broad jump instead. And so we'll have to kind of coach them on, you know, what the, what the technical stuff needs to look like. I'm not generally super strict about it, uh, but you will kind of see as they get more exposure. Cause we use, I mean, a bunch of different lateral bound variations during our training. So they get more comfortable with this over time, generally before we retest again. And so if they haven't ever done it before, we're taking whatever kind of improvements we get with a grain of salt to some degree. But if we still see consistent improvements after that first kind of retest, because we'll retest every four to eight weeks, depending on the guy and how much time we're getting with them. If we keep seeing kind of consistent improvements in that, then, you know, we know like, Hey, it's what we're doing is working. It's not a matter of just being more familiar with the movement, but yeah, occasionally guys will struggle with getting that kind of technical piece of it down. And then you're just like, Hey, you know, whatever, it's a baseline. Usually if they're that kind of low, they can't kind of figure out how to piece together anyway they're probably going to need a basic enough program in the weight room that that's not really driving your decision-making anyway. Like, you know, like this guy just needs to move better and you're going to load really basic stuff with him. And you know that if you see like strength improvements, you're probably going to see on field improvements. Like there's still those guys who are not at the strength standards yet where you can be really simple with your training. And so it's just kind of like, this is your baseline. We're not really making any big decisions based off of this because we have all this other stuff but we will kind of track how this improves. And eventually this will become a piece of our decision-making. So that makes a lot of sense. Like, especially with you saying like, let's just kind of slow it down for a minute and let's, let's work on strength, especially for those athletes that didn't develop really well in that later teenage year, I guess you'd say, and then moving on to where like strength is such a big part of that base. So I can understand that too. As far as the throws, I want to kind of talk like the vertical throw as well. Do you attempt to like have them snap and pop as quick as possible? You may not do cleans, but I like in my cleans, whenever I do it with people, if I'm doing a hand clean, stand tall, snap into place and then snap through to get that stretch shortening cycle going on. Are there any like cues you do for like those vertical displacement movements where you're trying to snap violently through um, or those some of your coaching cues on that? That's kind of, that's kind of another thing. And that's why we'll test a couple of different jump variations because Within it, kind of like a counter movement, you know, vertical displacement type of jump, one of the key factors, right, is how well do they use that elastic energy and that kind of eccentric action. And so what you can see when you do like a counter movement and non-counter movement jump, and then you also test like a depth jump or something, and you can test RSI, 
you can see how well they use that elastic energy and you can see what their elastic utilization ratio is. And from there, you can kind of make some decisions like, hey, do they need to work on this specific type of action? So do we need to kind of train more towards this piece? Or are they just not moving well through the counter movement? And if we cue them to move faster, will they jump higher? Right? Because some guys just, you know, for whatever reason, whether they learned it in their PE class or like whoever they trained with before, they just tend to move really slow through like everything when they're in the weight room. They just think they need to always be under control. So they don't know what that kind of like violent counter movement and reversal is like. And so some of those guys just need to cue out of it. Others, they straight up can't handle that eccentric velocity that you're throwing at them. So it's not going to really improve them. But over time, yes, we'll begin to kind of cue that. And if we're training, you know, some kind of like fast eccentric action, then yeah, we'll specifically cue it during that. But it may not always work for like output purposes, just from like a vertical or counter movement jump or whatever, because those guys just don't have that, that level of eccentric proficiency yet. Good uh, point, Sarah. So what about readiness? I've heard this throughout the conversation. I know that you track ball velocity, but I've had conversations on here as well. The athlete walks in the door. We want to know immediately that they are prepared for the day's work. Would they be going to a throw-in session first to determine like what their nervous system is capable of for that day? Could it be a sprint? Do you do what, what are your metrics like that first measurement to where you'd say, well, today might've been a high day, but today is not a high day now. Uh, so what are some of those data points that we've been referencing and how do you do that counter movement jumps, uh, any, any of that stuff? So altitude landings, whatever you, whatever you yeah. do there. I mean, so like the first thing I would look at is like, ideally, you know, a guy's personality by that point. So if they come in and they are not how they usually are, and you know, something's a little bit off, first thing is to just talk to them. So like, just like the human side of things is like the first piece to do. Because like, especially when you're dealing with like high school, college guys and like the young pro ball guys, like there's a, there's a lot of like emotional stuff happening there kind of like all the time. So you just need to kind of like take that into account and then you may have to make some adjustments based on that. But as far as like the objective stuff goes, everybody kind of has their warm up that they go through when they come in. And so that's all individualized. And so the first piece will be like their, you know, self myofascial releases and whatever. Then they'll go through their specific kind of like targeted mobility and corrective stuff. Then they start getting a sweat going. It's a little more dynamic. And then they have a potentiation piece to their warm-up. And so it's it's usually similar for pretty much everybody. But with all of them, we pretty much will pick a movement that we're measuring. And we just measure it every time they come in. And so like generally you want it to be simple enough that like, technical variations aren't really going to change it too much. So like a, a very simple kind of med ball throw can work a very simple kind of jump variation can work any of those things. And then what you're kind of looking for is like how far, you know, above or below your baseline is it. And then you can make some training decisions off of that. So in the short term, right. When guys first start, it's really not usable data for the first probably four weeks at least. Like you need a, you need a little bit to be built up, you need them coming in consistently. You want to be able to see like if they're, you know, if they're in their summer season, you want to see what they look like typically the day after a game. You want to see what they typically look like when they've had three days. Like you want to know all of those things too because there's other stuff going on that may make you think like, hey, this is a little off today, but there's probably a perfectly good explanation for it if you have enough data to kind of show you what it typically looks like those days. So yeah, so if we see a guy who's like 10% or more off of whatever number we're choosing to measure, then we probably need to, you know, if they're like, no, I feel great. And they're like, are really fighting it. Then maybe you retest or maybe you let them go through like some of their constraints work in the beginning. Some of their, their like, you know, low level throwing stuff in the beginning. 
and kind of get into it a little bit more. And then you may see what you either may retest or you may see what the radar gun looks like as they start to ramp up. If they're really fighting it, you may give them opportunity because like if somebody's immediately like, yeah, no, I don't have it today, then you, then you're not doing it anyway. Cause you're not going to get, even if the numbers are good, you're not going to get the level of output that you're looking for to kind of create that stress and that adaptation that you're looking for. So yeah, well, we have potentiation stuff for everybody. And so they usually have some freedom to kind of pick it as long as they do the same thing every time. Um, and so it's usually some kind of throw jump, or you can use a grip strength dynamometer too. Any of those things tend to work well. And you just want to look for, you know, is it within 10% or so of what they typically do? And then you can change stuff as needed. I want to talk about potentiation like you're referencing. I wanted to talk about constraints as well and kind of how you inform which constraints to use to where it will be productive, where you start that process and where you try and move from there. And then I want to talk about, I guess, high level performance, like your your upper people and the force velocity profile. And then to end this conversation, we'll go back down and we'll go about long-term athletic development again to end. Uh, so we're going to go really high and then we'll end really low, high low day, right? Talk a little bit about potentiation like you talked about and let's look at it through a couple of different lenses. I heard you talk about like grip strength and, and things like that, which could be a really good potentiation for gripping the ball because hand strength and that is very important. What are some other methods as well that you attempt to chain to potentiate things? I have used weighted balls um, and things such as that in particular training methods. And do you use that in weight methods or sprint methods such as sleds? unweighted, uh, accelerated, all this different stuff. So how does potentiation play into your overall picture? On like kind of the everyday side of things, we, we have at the end of like kind of their warm-up period, something that they're doing, whether it's, and so typically it'll fall into a couple of categories. So it may be an overcoming isometric specific to whatever they're doing that day. So like we know that it's going to be like a big throwing day and there's like a really specific position that they struggle with or whatever, we may do an overcoming ISO there. It may be some kind of jump, just max effort. It may be max effort sprint. It may be some kind of throw or other upper body ballistic movement. So with potentiation, what you're looking for is you want to go towards somebody's strengths. So they feel good about it. So it's something they're good at typically. And then on that same kind of note, you're going to go towards um, their strengths as far as like, are they a more force driven or elastic driven athlete? And so like the force driven guys, right? Generally, like your slower type stretch shortening cycle movements there, they do well at. So like your counter movement jumps and things like that, your ballistic pushups, uh, that kind of stuff. And they do well with the overcoming ISOs. And then you have your more elastic guys. They need like kind of the, the high, the intensive plyos, or they need the sprints, or they need a super light kind of med ball throw. And those are the things they do really well with. And so you can kind of like at the beginning of the session, it's going to be geared towards whatever that guy is specifically like what we're using to potentiate him. And the same could be, could be said, like if you're doing a potentiation session the day of, or the day before a game, same kind of thing would hold true, right? The, the force driven guys, you're probably going to hit like one to three super heavy singles. You're probably going to hit like, you know, some loaded jumps or things like that. And you're probably going to hit some kind of like heavier throws or upper body ballistic movements, something along those lines. That's what they're going to get. And then with your more elastic guys, if you're doing a session day of or day before a game, right, they're doing sprints you know, like, especially like longer type distance sprints, like max velocity type stuff, whether it's, you know, flies or like 30 yard runs, or maybe even some lightly kind of assisted stuff. If, if they have experience with that, then you've got light throws, you've got unloaded jumps or like assisted jumps, those kinds of things. Those are things that help kind of potentiate those guys. And then within a session, <clears throat> it does kind of depend on 
what time of year we're in and what kind of qualities we're going after. And so within a throwing session, we, we do like kind of our constraints drill work. And so this is kind of geared towards whatever deficiencies this athlete has, we're trying to go after and kind of like pattern this. And so like, in a sense, I guess that kind of potentiates the session in some way, because ideally what we're trying to do is take this like kind of focused piece of the delivery that we're really going after and then take it to the larger pattern, right. And kind of make it all fit together. And so by doing this work in the beginning, giving them a feel for this generally with some kind of overload ball and things like that in a constrained environment where we have kind of the guardrails for this movement and we can kind of force a, uh, an outcome that we're kind of looking for within the parameters of like what works best for their body type and all of these other factors, then ideally we've gotten a feel for that. And we can kind of take some amount of that. We're probably not going to, it's not going to be perfect, but we can take that to our throwing session. And then within a throwing session, if it's like a velocity development session, let's say for example, and we know somebody is like excellent, like generally elastic guys, excellent at like pull downs or running throws or something along those lines where they have this added momentum and they get on the mound and you've got like, you know, a 12 or 15 mile an hour difference. You're like, what is going on with this guy? Like clearly they're not syncing it up on the mound and there's, there's something not quite working right. And they're great at this other thing. We may potentiate the mound work with some like pull downs or running throws or whatever that they're really good at to make them kind of take that feeling to the mound. So they may do one or two running throws, and then they'll take immediately like a pitch or two off the mound. And then we'll go back and forth and kind of just keep patterning that until we've synced it up a little bit closer. It doesn't happen in one session, but generally you'll see slightly higher outputs at the thing they're not as good at as you go through it. And then on the force side of things, you could do a similar thing with a force driven thrower. Like maybe they're really, really good at throwing overload balls or they're really good at static drills or whatever, but it's not quite what you would expect when they throw a baseball. Then you might use, you know, overload balls and do the same kind of pattern with that, with them. So you can potentiate that within a session that way. If we're going after like power speed of some kind, and we have, again, a guy who's really good at one thing, we may potentiate, right. A jump with like a heavy lift, or we may, you know what I mean? You could potentiate those things in it, or with an overcoming ISO or whatever it might be. Um, and that's kind of just, you know, some of the ways that we'll use that, but yeah, we use potentiation in some form or fashion pretty much like, you know, in, in most sessions, whether it's like in a broader sense with the throwing, you know, when we're trying to pattern stuff, or if it's in a really specific sense when we're actually like trying to increase the output. Yeah. With my skill development, I'm typically working again, mostly with like sprinting and running, but if I'm just doing a a weight session, I never just have just a weight session, but whenever I'm doing those things, I really like to use potentiation as like because I feel like you're chaining movements together and it's not like everything has to be specific because there is some good, there's some good that can come out of being general. Like we spoke to kind of earlier, but I really like how it makes you think as a coach and what you talked about, it gives feel and reference points for your athletes, you know, like those overcoming isometrics and things. Those are great to talk about those positions that people may struggle with, even in sprinting. Uh, I use those all the time. So potentiation is something that I feel like can really, again, potentiate, warm up the car. You talked about hardware and software. We had me, I didn't use that word earlier. I'm mad at myself, but it's a chance to rev the engine. But at the same time, it's something that can slowly build up and build towards more skill um, development too, like you kind of referenced. So I like how all that came around. And you said something in that, that blends really nicely with one of our last talking points here. You said in the potentiation, you would want to go towards someone's strength. And I want to talk about 
the force velocity profile. And this is always the battle that I have with myself. And I'll just kind of, I guess, say the way that I typically go about it. Normally working with teens, like you said, if I'm further off in the off season, what I'll normally do is I'm going to work on more generalized qualities. And even if they are a more force-based athlete, it's not that I'm going to abandon elasticity later on, but like you said, play to their strengths and let that quality build into the way that they would express their strength in the playing field. Um, whereas later on, we'll be more specific. So I guess what I'm saying is, how do you find that balance? How do you justify your balance between that elasticity, quick twitch, and then you got your force dominant people. So let's talk about how you use it to inform you and how you kind of smelled all that together in the long run. It depends on a lot of factors first, but I think one of the ways that I kind of view it is through the lens of like kind of the time of year and when they need to be ready. So, right. I mean, kind of like you talked about, like the further you are away from whatever they have to be ready for, the more you can kind of harp on and go after those weaknesses. And so again, you, you know, kind of strength and high force being one of those things that helps to potentiate a lot of other qualities. Even if a guy is, you know, really force driven, if they haven't touched up or, or kind of like been in a, in like a, a really high force kind of program or session for a bit, they're still probably going to get some of that in the beginning of their program, just kind of set up what we're doing from there on. Like they need some of the stuff that's coming from that. But then generally what we're doing, assuming everything is kind of how we want it from the starting point, they, you will do more of what their weaknesses are in the off season while keeping a thread of their strengths in there the whole time. And so, you know, this may mean you have like one, you know, high force type movement per week thrown in towards the end of a session, whatever it might be on a given day to just kind of maintain that thread or it can be done a lot of different ways. And then with an elastic athlete, you've always kind of, you're maintaining that thread of elasticity throughout it. And the closer you get to the season, the more you're playing to their strengths because you need them to be confident. You need them to be feeling good. And ideally we want some kind of potentiating effect from what they're doing. Now, does that mean you abandon their weaknesses during the season? Like absolutely not. Cause you're still trying to make improvements in these areas, but it's definitely a balancing act. The other thing that I think is really important to think about is when you have younger athletes, like, you know, high school age kids, stuff like that, like past puberty, but still young athletes, they're not really developed yet where we know exactly what their strengths are going to be. Like you can see to some degree when a guy's like super elastic or like super force driven, like you can see that, but somewhere in the middle, you're not going to be exactly sure. So you can give them more of what you think they need or they're not so good at. And it's probably not a huge deal. The further somebody gets along in their career and the higher level athlete they already are, right? Like if you, if you get like Max Scherzer coming to you and you're like, oh man, like he's really forced efficient. We got to get him strong. And he like really has never done like that much strength work before. Are you really doing him a service? Like probably not. Like you're probably going to make him worse at what he already is. Like with those guys, you, you give them a little bit of what's towards their weaknesses, try to make them a little bit better. But you want to make sure you're always staying with those strengths because clearly they're already elite. So you have to be more careful when, when you get with these higher and higher level athletes. The younger somebody is and the lower level they are, the more you can kind of gear it towards their weaknesses more than anything else. Um, and the less of a thread you need to maintain of those other things. But I think with, with everybody, you always want to maintain a little bit of everything in that program, right? It's, it's the, you know, the Charlie Francis vertical integration, you want to maintain a little bit of everything. It's just a matter of like what proportion is that piece in throughout the year. And it kind of depends 
you know, on the individual, on, you know, the time of year, on all of these different things, how, how high of a level they are. But I think one of the other things is the, the force driven guys tend to do better getting a little bit more of the elastic stuff and a little bit less of the strength, more so than the elastic guys tend to do well with more force driven stuff and less elastic stuff. The elastic guys, like you ruin those guys really quickly. If you're like, all right, you know, we're squatting ass to grass, like 400 pounds. Like that's what we're training towards. Like that's not what that guy needs. And it's probably not going to make him very good. Like you have to kind of, you know, blend in. Maybe he does better with a half squat. Maybe you need to change the level that you're shooting for. And he's not going to exactly meet all your strength standards. That might be fine. Whereas the force driven guy, you can get them a little bit more away from strength. And you may see some other qualities come out because they've just been trained the wrong way for a long time. So it does tend to not work the same both ways as well. And I like the point you made. I'd like to just say, I feel like exposure for younger athletes kind of brings awareness too, because so many young athletes lack awareness. Like I can say something and they don't get it from my vocabulary that I'm using. They don't know what it, they don't realize they're squatting a jump or they don't realize that they're hinging. Like they don't realize their movement strategy. So for me, you're right. Whenever I work with more teenage athletes, I do work with some older as well, but with the teenage athletes, I'm like, okay, and this part of your preparation, we're way off squat the jump. I, you know, whenever you deal with this landing force, it's okay to squat right now. I want you to get max force off the ground, longer ground contacts, all that, because we're not winning a sprint. We're not running a sprint race today. We're trying to get strong. That's the phase of it. But the exposure is important because I can't get really specific with my vocabulary and how I attack things if they've never felt the other end of the spectrum. It's something that I've found uh, to be important to introduce them to it. For sure. We can go a hundred different ways. We went after some really big topics today, but I think we've left enough meat on the bone here. Let's talk a little bit about long-term athletic development. And we and it's been throughout the thread of the conversation. You're a baseball person. A lot of the times, baseball people pursue a single sport. I'm myself and typically multi-sport uh, if possible, especially at a young age. But even if you're not multi-sport, as someone who is in this you market yourself as a high velocity uh, program developer. Uh, so what are some ways that you can approach something like this and perhaps a career in baseball through a long-term method? I think first, you know, the multi-sport thing is, is kind of a good place to start. So I think that playing multiple sports is great. If you like multiple sports, I would never force somebody regardless of the age to play multiple sports. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of benefit in, you know, doing things like, especially in sports that you're not going to get those feels from anywhere else. Like when, when kids are young, like soccer and gymnastics are awesome because there's no other sports that you do like those two, like they're very different from everything else. So kind of getting those bases, one playing with your feet and like the coordination aspect of that is, is very different than anything else. And then two, like the body coordination of gymnastics is different than anything else. And this doesn't mean you have to play it in like an organized way. You could do it in like a phys ed type of manner and, and do it in like a, a training session. I guess my son's going to be badass. He, we play soccer at home and he goes to gymnastics right now. So he's only like, he's like three and a half. So he just started, but it's great because it flips them upside down. It makes you deal, roll around. Like yeah. I've seen so much development in just like six months, you know, like from what he was able to do to just now, he's just, he talks more even like, it's just, I know that's a natural development and progression, but the sensory integration uh, and kind of all those experiences are, are really good. So continue on. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I have this conversation with my wife all the time. We have a, a 14 month old 
And I was like, yeah, the first two sports she's playing, like she doesn't have to stay with them, but the first two sports she's going to do are going to be soccer and gymnastics. I was like, you know, whether we do them, you know, kind of in an organized way or not, well, that's where she's going to start and we'll kind of go from there with it. Um, so totally agree. But yeah, so I think that's, that's kind of important is, is yeah, if you can get them into multiple sports when they're very young, like, I think that's an awesome thing. And, and I think specialization at a very young age tends to hamper kids, not because of specialization itself, but because of what that tends to mean outside of like that specific context. So like, it means you play nearly year round. It means you probably have parents or coaches who are a little too into it for like eight to 12 year olds. Like it just doesn't matter that much. And, and winning becomes more of an important thing than development, which has long-term implications that tend to be negative. And I'll kind of come back to that. And, and so you've got all the other things going on that, that, that really aren't, it's not the fault of specialization or they're just playing one sport. It's what you're doing in addition to that, that becomes problematic. Cause like you could play just baseball. And if you go and train with somebody who like knows what they're doing and they treat it like a, a kind of long-term athletic development type session, then you're going to get what you need outside of just playing baseball. And that's totally fine. You'll probably like that better. If you don't like those other sports, totally cool. But that's not what tends to happen, right? You, you, you go, you play just baseball, you play it nine months of the year, and then you're taking, you know, hitting lessons and pitching lessons and all of these things where basically, you know, a guy's sitting on a bucket, tossing you a ball and you're throwing 50 pitches on your off day from practice, or you're going and somebody's throwing you BP um, and yelling at you because your stance is not good or something like that. Right. I mean, it's just, it doesn't tend to work that well for other reasons outside of that specifically. So I think that's one thing, but what I will say is generally, my guys who want to take baseball as far as they can or whatever sport it is, they want to take that as far as they can. <clears throat> I do tell them like, Hey, by the time you get to high school or certainly your sophomore year of high school, you know, if you want to take this as far as you can in totally your choice, you need to specialize. Like, you know, Julius Peppers can get away with playing multiple sports in college because he was a freak and would have been, you know, great regardless. He didn't need to do any of the, like Bo Jackson can get away with it. He was a freak. He was naturally gifted. Like if you're coming here in training and there's a debate about what level you're going to be able to play college at, that's not you. Right. So we need to specialize and really get the most out of your development that we possibly can. And that doesn't happen when you're playing, you know, basketball in the winter and then you can't train or you're really tired when you come to train or, you know, we're missing days or whatever it is, or, you know, you get, you know, an injury playing football or a same deal. You can't train as much in the fall, those kinds of things. And that's when I think it becomes problematic playing multiple sports. If you want to take one as far as you can, when you get older, not a great idea. Um, but so what, what we do with younger guys. So we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, gamify as much stuff as possible. We want them going, you know, fast. So we're going to throw stuff hard. We're going to run fast. We're going to jump high. We're going to compete. Um, and, and so what that's going to do, we talked about the, the limb velocity that you can kind of get at this young age. The other piece to that is that we're kind of giving them these things that they may not get in a typical practice, right? So like with really young kids, one of the things that tends to happen is that their throwing proficiency professes or progresses way before their catching proficiency. So you see like dads doing like these goofy things, like tossing with their kids and, and kids are like kind of master mimickers. So they get pretty good at doing these like aberrant patterns to some degree. So, you know, it may be a better idea to not have the kids play catch. So when they come in, we're constrained by space. I only have so much room where guys can throw. They're throwing into nets or into walls anyway. So no one's having to catch anything in the context of like throwing hard to somebody else. So no one's worried about, you know, getting drilled in the face or chest or leg by like, you know, some kind of, you know, random fastball over here. 
so they can throw hard without really any consequences to missing a spot. And they don't have to worry about catching it from their partner. So there's no kind of like negative there. So I think that's one thing. Have kids, have kids be able to throw hard and not have to worry about catching the ball back is, is a plus. So that's one thing we do. You know, we, we give them as much variation as we can, um, especially at the very young ages. So like, you know, variation in direction, variation in amplitude, variation in velocity. Um, we will mix in stuff that improves their, their ability to catch, but it'll be different than someone just throwing them a ball like they might get during practice. So we have kind of all of these things that we can do where we're kind of getting them to self-organize in a positive way without the negatives that come from just the stage of development that they're in. You know, you can mix command in the same way where we're having them just not pitch off the mound to a catcher all the time. They can be doing, you know, jump throws towards a square on the wall or, you know, throw a football toward, you know what I mean? So we can do all of these different things where they're getting good at these general skills. And then they're going to have the bandwidth to kind of pare this down more specifically as they progress. So all great points about long-term athletic development. I love just the options that you that you offer there because I do feel like it's important to have those options in mind, uh, especially like sometimes I give the kids a choice. Like if I can give them one choice in a day, that's fun for them. Like I'm like, okay, you get to choose the game. Here's the menu. What, what are we playing today? You know, and then they love to compete too. I'm like, God, I didn't know kids that were this young or this competitive, <laughs> but they, they are, uh, especially when they have ownership of the situation. So you make great points there, um, especially about the power of multi-sports and then perhaps some of the drawbacks and then also the, the power of specialization and then also the things to kind of watch out for. So like, I think one of the things that's gone through this conversation is it's important to like find the pulse in the time zone that you're in and to figure out what you get the most out of for that particular part. It doesn't matter if it's an MLB player, if it's a high school athlete, or if it's somebody who's coming in for their first session, like a good coach, what's going through this conversation is the ability to adjust and adapt. And we could talk about how to potentiate a skill for a 10 year old, probably, which wouldn't be as much, or we could talk about, you know, somebody who's really high up there. Um, So I love how these things are able to ebb and flow. And you've been able to kind of talk about some different rationale there. So, we went through some not so specific points and tried to talk about some big things, uh, but you also offered a lot of rationale about how to be more specific and uh, more generalized in your program prep. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. Before we jump off, uh, tell people where they can find you, anything that you have out there. Um, so the, I'll, I'll link that all in the show notes as well. So uh, whenever this goes live, guys, check out the show notes and uh, you can get access to all this stuff you references. My most active spots uh, for putting out content are Instagram. So that's just at Tyler underscore Ansman. Um, and then my website, which is just TylerAnsman.com. Um, I'm also on uh, YouTube as well. And that's probably like third on the list. And then I'm on Twitter, but it's, you know, pretty occasional there. Um, so, yeah, so the, the website has articles. It has some, some other free stuff there, like resources for like uh, tracking throwing load and things like that. And then, you know, it's got information about remote training or anything like that. So that if you're not in the Baltimore area, you can reach out and, uh, and train with me if you'd like. So those are probably the best spots. Awesome. Well, I have all that linked in the show notes. Again, I just want to, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to sit down at the end of your day. I know kind of how it is at the end of a good training day. Uh, you're kind of mentally fatigued and tired, but thank you for taking time out of your day to sit down. I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the show notes for links to Tyler's socials and website. Don't forget to subscribe to the monthly newsletter over at FromTheGroundUp AthleticPerformance.com. The first letter is live now.
You can expect all the main points for guests for the month to be delivered in a condensed and concise manner. I'll also be sharing discounts for great products such as the one referenced today, Perform by AminoCo. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to purchase any of the different amino acid blends offered by AminoCo and make sure to use the code FTG to save 30% off at checkout. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to keep up with my latest episodes and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so. Thanks for listening. <laughs>